What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Curse Discussions podcast. I think this is episode eight now. Uh, once again, I am your host, I suppose, Chucky R. Law. With me today, we have uh, Utility Maximizer, or Max for short. We've got Gleason and Sean Last. And we're here to talk about economics in this episode. So we're going to cover a pretty wide range of topics. Uh, so sort of running the gauntlet on you know different, just different things that are interesting as well as some topical stuff. So to start us off, actually, first of all, why don't we go around everyone and like, introduce yourself. I am Sean Last. Uh, <laughs> I make... YouTube videos, and I'm an internet racist. Okay. Uh, I'm Max. I run the blog Profit Maximizer on Tumblr. Uh, I'm Gleason, and I'm interested in rates of profit. Okay. Well, <laughs> we'll have plenty of time to uh, talk about that. I, but before we get into you know rates of profit or anything like you know any, any kind of esoteric Marxianism or or uh, Rothbardianism, as it were. Um, First of all, I, I think it might be interesting to talk about something that's been very topical recently, and that's that's free trade, right? Because Trump recently has come out blump. Like the racist he is, uh, he's been pushing some tariffs recently, and particularly on steel and aluminum. And obviously, you know, like Canada, Mexico, uh, and the European Union are sort of threatening to retaliate. I think Europe, the European Union is cooking up some stuff with the... Uh, WTO. Um, and there's a lot of debate about how this will impact the American economy. I, I think it's sort of interesting how the the center left has come down now. I think they were probably leaning at least slightly towards free trade before, but now that Trump kind of took a, a stance against free trade, um, they've now decisively come out in favor of free trade, which I guess is good, although it's kind of eye-rolling. Um, but, but that brings up the point of, uh, you know, the economic impact of free trade. So does anyone have, it seems to be the, the consensus of the economic consensus that, that free trade is generally a good thing. Does anyone have uh, a contrary view? Uh, I probably feel more ambivalent about it, I guess, than than most people do. Although if I had to come down on one side, that is the side I would come down on. Okay. And uh, what oh, go thing, ahead. So one one thing to say is that uh, the, the the tariffs and, and the like. Well, it's are two things. One, to my surprise, you know, Trump's tariff thing with China seemingly kind of worked out in that he put tariffs or threatened to put tariffs on China, and this caused them to respond in a way so as to increase the free trade between the two countries. And that that's more of a strategic thing. But that surprised me that that seemingly worked. Uh, but then in the second place. Free trade seemingly impacts sexes differently in that the sorts of jobs, which are better jobs on average than manufacturing jobs, but the sorts of jobs which have replaced manufacturing jobs in the United States as a result of free trade have disproportionately been jobs that women are well-suited for as opposed to men. Uh, obviously, in all cases, we're mostly talking here about low-skilled people. And there's an argument to be had that having low-skilled women unemployed is not as societally bad of a thing as is having unskilled men be unemployed. I don't really know what to make of that in terms of how important that is or anything like that, but it's something I've heard people say that is not uh, wildly implausible, I guess. Mm -hmm. that, that's interesting. So that would sort of be a uh, a social effect, which you know you you could argue like might uh, temper the positive effects, the positive like pure economic effects in terms of material well-being that are uh, 
brought on by free trade. But potentially, and also, I mean, economically, there's a difference because, at least in theory, women, right, if they can't get a job, they can get a husband. It doesn't really work the other way around. Uh, and so it might be, I don't know if this is true or not, it's like an empirical question, but it may be that if, when men can't get a job, they're more likely to end up on welfare or something like this than are women. Mm -hmm. So are you saying that we should have, like, sugar mommies then? <laughs> Uh, yes, that is obviously the intention behind what I meant the whole time. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I, it, it is kind of interesting how uh, free trade seems to be one of those issues that seems to argue basically for um, some sort of technocracy, at least from a libertarian point of view, uh, and, and argue sort of against populism since there's a, there's a pretty big disconnect where most of like the experts you know, uh, seem to come on down on the libertarian side of things whereas you know the masses like by and large don't like i don't think free trade is very popular i mean actually interestingly it might be getting more popular because blumpf is against it uh <laughs> but yeah, i mean we'll leave the politics out of it is uh, a little bit here i think that it's sort of the free trade thing relates to a, a maybe a, a broader economic question about because it's like one of the things that people don't understand but i don't mean to comment I mean sort of random people sometimes don't understand is that the actual manufacturing output in the united states has increased as we've lost manufacturing jobs due to an increase of the efficiency of the technology involved mm -hmm. but that then leaves a question of what to do with a growing number of especially young males that are seemingly not fit necessarily for the economy and that's a, that's not only a social question but also probably an important economic question as well that doesn't have an obvious easy answer sure uh gleason max anything to add well i don't think you have to necessarily assume that that people will be permanently unemployed it's more of a question of what what kind of jobs will they find in the future I mean, because I don't, I don't think anybody argues that free trade is good because it makes stuff cheaper at the cost of increasing unemployment. I think people would say that it makes stuff cheaper at the cost of making some industries poorer and some richer. But on there, it's the consumer that wins. Right. What's that called? Frictional unemployment or something? I don't know. I don't know economics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, fr frictional. Yeah, but it's... I mean, how clear is it, though, that there aren't some group of people who, through the mechanisms of free trade, and again, I, I think free trade is on net and economically good thing regardless, but that uh, some people have left the, the, the labor force for a longer period than you would normally associate with frictional unemployment. It's a bit hard to tease out causality here because a lot of things are going on, but in the United States anyway, right among very unskilled males, there's been a increase over the decades, a quite large increase in the proportion of working age males that are simply not involved in labor at all. Uh, we're involved in a lot of things, but one of the things people say is that they used to have these uh, pretty good paying jobs that are readily available given the skills that males naturally have in terms of uh, physical attributes uh, that now aren't available. And as a result, they'd have to invest more, especially in cognitive ability in order to compete in the economy. Uh, and they can't do this. And the sorts of jobs that have replaced those manufacturing jobs and customer service jobs that are much more, that, that in some cases, like in the case of waiting tables, for instance, can pay well above the minimum wage, but are more well suited for the average female. Uh, and therefore, is that a, is it 
this is some sort of impact on the long-term unemployment of young males in the unskilled population. I that's interesting because I, I would say that um, like I guess you could argue that you know something like waiting tables is more suited to you know the average female, but I, it seems like there's a lot of jobs in that sort of genre, right? Like minimum wage uh, type jobs that that. Um, would maybe be about equally suited to males and, and females or, or possibly even slightly more suited to males that are still available. And, and one might think that if, if this hypothesis were true, that, that we might see like, you know, more and more people like dropping out of the workforce in, in tougher economic times. But it, I, I'm, I'm not sure, is that actually true? Like it, it seems like we've seen like a long-term trend of people leaving the labor force, even, you know, which continues to this day, when the economy is improving quite a bit, include, including adding jobs in that sort of uh, low-skill genre, which I think some men would be quite good at. Yes, I don't know if, if there have been sort of bumps in the trend during like the recession and this sort of thing. One thing to say though is that when we talk about factory jobs, right, the, the reason why I brought up waiting is because waiting tables is something that if you're decent at anyway, you can make well above the minimum wage. So like there are a lot of minimum wage jobs. It's like literally stock stuff that, that uh, aren't like this. But that factory jobs, at least as people remember them, uh, were, were paid significantly above the minimum wage. I think people overestimate the degree to which factory jobs were paid above the minimum wage. But they were paid somewhat above the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, so waiting seems to be one of the most accessible examples of something today that you can do with very low, like near zero skill that makes well above the minimum wage. Uh, the, the factory thing seems less common, although it's still, I mean, it's still around. It it, the part it, of that's country. true. A factory worker is kind of comparable to like a waiter in the sense that they can both do like all right, whereas someone who just like works at Party City and talks about conspiracy theories a lot probably is not doing as well. Yes, they'll probably never end up, you know, making it enough income to not kill themselves by the time they're 30. Yeah, that's probably correct. But anyway, I, let's let's change topics and shift gears a little bit if we might. This is another topic in, in macroeconomics that I thought is sort of funny. I know macroeconomics is, is a little bit Jewish, but how much do deficits matter? Are, are they worth less than fecal matter? <laughs> like, I, I, I remember seeing some, some studies, right, or that, that set, found that there was um, just like there was a correlation between um, – you know, uh, corporate taxes, right? Like a high corporate tax rate generally means bad things for economic growth. They found that there was a mild negative correlation between um, running a, a like a high deficit or I, I can't actually remember. And this is probably an important distinction. I can't remember if it was the deficit itself or if it was just the accumulated debt. But but either way, there was some sort of negative correlation between that and economic growth. Although, I, interestingly, I think it was less than... Uh, you know, a lot of different taxes. I think it even was probably less than the individual income tax, which to me sort of implies that it, it would be a good policy decision on the part of the state to to run a debt. I mean, like even if running a deficit does have some mild negative effects, if the choice is between you know increasing taxes and running a deficit, you should you know basically just choose run a deficit. Well, so the debt to GDP ratio has a. Uh, most research finds it as a non-linear relationship with growth, such that uh, in a more moderate range of debt-to-GDP ratios, increases aren't going to have a big effect on growth. But somewhere around 
the most commonly cited figure is around 90%, uh, that going above that has a fairly large negative effect on economic growth. It, it seems like putting your debt-to-GDP ratio above that might decrease uh, a country's growth rate by something like 1.5%, which obviously is is quite a lot over the long run. Uh, that's what it's the, most of the... I, I was uh, recently looking at some empirical literature about this sort of thing, and that's what most of it seems to indicate to me. There was, there was a funny story back in 2010. There was this paper released that claimed that the average... Uh, the average growth rate of countries with debt-to-GDP ratio is above 90% over a, about a 100-year period of the data they looked at in about 40 countries. That it was as low as negative 0.2 compared to like something like 3% for countries of uh, lesser debt-to-GDP ratios. And there was a big controversy about that. And it turned yeah, out this is the Reinhardt-Rogoff thing. Is this what yes. you're talking about? Yes, exactly, the, the Reinhardt-Rogoff paper. And there was some... Uh, some somewhat embarrassing coding errors found in that paper uh, in, in terms of how they did the spreadsheet. There were some autistic arguments about how you weight different things in the statistics. Uh, but, it, but it became a weird debate because it was as if those who were correcting this paper were saying that the growth did not have an effect. But in fact, the figure that I cited before suggesting that it causes a decrease in growth of something like 1% to 1.5% is based on these sort of uh, papers arguing that the, ca that the case against debt is much lesser than Reinhardt and Rogoff made it out to be, uh, which in the public and aided by people who know better, like uh, Paul Krugman, uh, somehow this was perceived as them saying that that didn't matter at all to growth, which obviously a, a decrease of, say, 1% in growth actually matters quite a good deal. Did they did they identify the mechanism that is supposed to inhibit growth, or is it just an empirical trend? Well, I don't know what the specific mechanism is by which it does inhibit growth, but one thing obviously they checked for through very a variety of empirical strategies, is to make sure that it is not simply that those countries which are facing harsh economic conditions to begin with grow debt because of those harsh economic conditions. Like this isn't a, a recession effect, something like that. Um, so that that sort of plausible alternative story has been ruled out uh, in the empirical literature. But I don't, I, to my knowledge anyway, that, that that's not something that's been fleshed out and, and decisively shown in terms of the mechanism. Uh, and as you know, I'm sort of, I'm less interested in the mechanism anyway. Uh, that's <laughs> hard to get at, whereas the effect of policy is easier to get at, I think. How very positivist. And that kind of brings up, if I can sort of uh, shift this topic a little bit further, um, sort of an underlying debate in, in economics, or I'm not sure how much of a debate it is, but it, basically it's the role of like empiricism in economics and, and the role of, uh, you know, a priori reasoning, right? And, and to what extent there is one. Obviously, in, in you know, uh, like a lot of libertarian political circles, I'm a libertarian, quite a lot of people are, are interested in, in Austrian economics and, and therefore are, are more inclined to uh, be very favorable towards uh, a priori economic reasoning and sort of skeptical of arguments that uh, rely very heavily on empiricism without attempting to identify a mechanism but it's not just the austrians the austrians are extremely like gung-ho on the anti-empiricism thing but there there's other like tendencies there too right like there's people i i i understand that there's some sort of tension between mathematical modeling in economics as which sometimes clashes with empiricism i don't know do you guys want have anything to say about that that is well that's true but I think the tide has, has significantly turned on that. So that if you look back in the 80s, for instance, and then there's empirical literature looking at just the sorts of articles that are published in economics journals. So back in the 80s, the majority, maybe it was the 70s, but back then, that time period, the majority, the vast majority of papers that were being published were these 
sort of theoretical and especially simulation papers in, in macroeconomics. Uh, and that over time, it is very much moved in the other direction. Uh, and so that now the majority of stuff being published uh, is empirically based uh, there. And the economics has become, I think, somewhat better in the, in the way they try to do empirical and statistically minded stuff. I think with the Austrians, like the praxeological method, I think today is kind of silly, but I think it was somewhat understandable. I mean, Mises must have been thinking about these sorts of things back in the 1910s, uh, that period that's when sort of modern statistics is not fully even fleshed out yet. Uh, I, I, I doubt, I, I'm not even sure if it was invented and I would be improbable for Mises to know what a multiple regression was, uh, things like this. Uh, so I think it's it's more understandable in that context, but to carry it on to today seems very uh, strange to me. And I would say not only um, was, was like this actual statistical methods harder to access, but I think if if I understand correctly, also just the data itself was not as available. Yes, yeah, that's very true. And actually carrying out the analysis, I mean, you just you, you there was no calculators. No, the log yes, tables. Yes, like even a, a single statistical analysis would take extremely long. This is kind of a point Brian Kaplan makes, right? That like uh, basically a lot of the good work that, that Austrians have historically done has sort of been incorporated into just like mainstream neoclassical economics, and uh, especially like a lot of stuff like that Hayek worked on with price theory. Mm -hmm. It's a good example. I mean, I, it seems like the Austrians, with their praxeological stuff, though, they make it out to be more. Uh, rigorous and austere than it actually is. That they make it out as if they're going to derive this in the way that a like Spinoza has a favorite has a famous philosophical work where he tries to derive philosophical ideas through a method of proof analogous to what you might see in math. And they act as if they're going to do that when they talk about their method. At least some Austrians do. But if you actually read any Austrian text, like it does not actually. It's not formed that way. Uh, it, it doesn't actually follow that close uh, of, of a deductive process. It ends up being more like just just what you would imagine if people were trying to reasonably, logically argue about different things with maybe a hyper-awareness of the fact that, that what they're saying, uh, caring more about what, that what they say follows logically rather than whether or not their premises are substantiated in reality. Now, if I can defend Austrians for a minute here, though, I, I would say that, um, you know, it should be noted that economics is probably you know one of the most difficult uh, social sciences to actually apply empiricism to just because of the fact that you, you really can't do a completely controlled experiment now you can compensate for this with like longitudinal stuff right but you can't really you know you can't design like an experiment specifically you know with all the controls and, and everything uh, whereas you can in like psychology uh, for example. And I think that that makes it so that um, perhaps it is a little bit warranted, I mean, to varying degrees, obviously, like, you know, a season for all things to have some sort of skepticism of uh, empirical findings that just have, like, really weird results and, and no identifiable mechanism. Certainly weird results, definitely, right? Because you always have to incorporate new evidence into your uh, prior probability estimate there. In a way, it is unfortunate because what you say is true that it is harder to do statistics in economics. And in an ideal world where incentives weren't real, what you would want to happen then is that economists would go out of their way to try to do empiricism in the most rigorous way of all, all the social sciences. Uh, because it's so hard, they better be doing it 
as carefully as human possible, as is humanly possible. But of course, what happened until recently was that it said, understandably, this caused them to shy away from even trying. Uh, and it's been somewhat alleviated by the fact that governments these days just collect so much data, like you know, time series data just started appearing, and then economists figured out what to do with it eventually. But but the, the level of yeah. I mean, what really speaks to this, I think, one thing that does is the level of argument that occurs in economic, macroeconomics about how to measure things, right? Very, very simple, very fundamental things like uh, the, what is the best measure of uh, inflation and price levels and growth. These, all, these things are all controversial, even though they're the most basic measures that you have to start with before you can do an analysis of anything. I think we should also maybe distinguish between the, the views of Rothbard and the views of Hayek. Because it seems to me that Rothbard's view took, took this kind of extreme view that we tend to describe as being the Austrian view, which is the view that you can start from certain premises and kind of deduce everything. And that was kind of Rothbard's take on empiricism, that you can kind of know things. Whereas I think Hayek had maybe a slightly weaker but I'm not I'm not exactly sure if Hayek actually shared Rothbard or Mises' view that you could deduce certain fundamental truths about the economy. You know, you look at the Mises Institute people and they oftentimes kind of shit on Hayek, right? And talk about how they I do, mean he's basically yeah. a cuck, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean he was he was literally a neoliberal in like his life. But, I, I also yeah. think it's quite interesting how it seems like a lot of i mean and you know it this is probably what this actually is is to counter signal the uh mises institute people and since the mises institute is right wing uh, and they shit on hayek i think a lot of left libertarians self-identified left libertarians sort of identify with hayek now they, they kind of like hayek which but that that's sort of weird in itself Right, because Milton Friedman gets so much crap for like you know supporting Pinochet or whatever, advising Pinochet is the Chicago Boys. Yeah, okay. But Milton Friedman, if you look at it, was very measured, right, in in anything he said about Chile. Like he was, he went out of his way to say like, ah, oh, well, you know, it's it's not obviously you know dictatorships are bad. Whereas Hayek did did not make those caveats. He just like openly praised Pinochet and talked about how like great the regime was. Yeah, he has this passage where he talks about it is it would be better to have a, a liberal dictatorship than an illiberal democracy, and I think pretty much everybody knew which illiberal dictatorship he was talking I, I mean, about. Well, let's be honest, Hayek was based. <laughs> I mean, like, <laughs> but what I wanted to go back was Hayek's views on empiricism, which I think I think his view was, if I understand it, was you know if you say have a situation in physics where you have, you know, you can write down maybe the equation of the system as being one variable as a function of a few others. But his view was, but, but if you were to try to translate that to economics, you have variables like prices. And if you wanted to, you know, if, if, you, if you take the, you know, the neoclassical or Austrian view just completely at face value, you know, this price is a function of all the preferences of, of the consumers in the economy all the uh, all the technologies available, all the knowledge these, that each person possesses, and so on. And so, even if there is an equation that relates the the two, it's not really discoverable, and it's so complex. Well, even even if you could write it down, 
you wouldn't be able to actually fill in the unknowns. So like in physics, you can write down an equation and you can say, this is my model. And you can try to fill in the unknowns and get a prediction. But the point is that the fundamental aspects of, you know, the, of an economic model are on the one hand, you know, technology, which is really uh, an aspect of people's knowledge and their preferences. And those are really not accessible. So, so e even if the model is exactly true, it's extremely difficult to test because they're kind of, it's the, 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 the actual variables of the model are outside of view. And in a kind of strange way, this actually relates to his critique of central planning because his critique of central planning is that is that the central planner does not have access to all this information that makes the uh, that makes the market operate, and you know if economists really could make predictions, then in in, in a way they would have solved the calculation problem, because you know the because the calculation problem is the process is is the problem of acquiring all this information. Um, and if, and if a central body could acquire all this information, then it could somehow simulate markets and, and just kind of solve the calculation problem like that. So in a kind of strange way, the two arguments are kind of joined. Do you know what Hayek would say about this notion that, that today a lot of uh, empirical literature and economics doesn't make any attempt to measure something like the preferences of everyone or something like this, uh, but rather there's an awful lot of literature just trying to directly empirically tease out the efficacy of different policies. And seemingly yeah. from that thing, you could engage in a kind of central planning depending on the policies being tested. Uh, do you know what his sort of, I guess, economic epistemology would have to say about something like that? Um, I'm not entirely sure what I could say. I mean, a lot of actual models that theorists come up with make, you know, very extreme assumptions like all consumers have the same preferences or, you know, all firms, you know, ha have the same technology, which is kind of a bit of a, a bit of a kind of a way of avoiding the whole problem, the whole calculation. Because in some ways, the whole calculation problem is kind of bound up in the, the heterogeneous nature of the world. Because if everything was the same, then it'd be quite easy to solve the calculation problem. Because you'd only just have to look at the preferences of one individual, and you know everybody's preferences. Um, so I th maybe it was maybe he's he's looking at it more from the point of view of of testing models. But the thing it seems like a lot of empirical work in economics. I'm not sure to what extent it actually tries to test theoretical models as opposed to just looking at, oh, do these vouchers, does this voucher scheme work? You know, how right. much do people respond to such and such an incentive? But I, yes, exactly. And, and I guess what I'm saying is that because there's an awful lot of empirical literature today that does not even make its business looking into abstract theoretical models, it seemingly that would be a sort of route of empirical, potentially depending on what the data said, that that would be, potentially a route of empirical justification of central planning that at first glance might sound like the sort of thing Hayek was complaining about, but actually uh, his critique would not apply to. Uh, I don't think so, because his critique is, 
without being able to plan the economy in the detail? Is, is, is it possible for a central body to be able to plan the economy in the detail successfully? I guess um, it's going to hinge then on what we, how we define like a planner planning de- the economy in detail. Because the thing is, like, if, if like Hayek was not opposed to environmental regulations, I mean, really, in Hayek, in 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 the middle of his life, in like the mid-century, um, was a neoliberal. He was he was somebody who was very pro-market, but that doesn't that's not the same thing as being pro-laissez-faire. I mean, it was really Milton Friedman who was the real laissez-faire one, um, and so that's why Hayek place so much emphasis on on defending markets rather than defending you know complete laissez-faire so you know if you've got a policy that you know that 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 tries to achieve a result but doesn't try to plan people's behavior in detail then i don't think it would be subject to the calculation problem Um, what would would you would you say something that like um wait i guess there's i'm not exactly sure i guess what the planning would have to mean, like the sense in which, say, sin taxes, prohibition, so-called nudges, right, nudge policies, these things yeah. are, have as their direct goal actual behavior, um, but but they don't mm-hmm. make any weird assumptions about uh, about trying to uh, measure things that can't be measured either, though. No? Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure, but I would I would say that I would that the nudge stuff is probably not subject to the calculation problem. So I'm not sure Hayek would critique it in that sense. Well, there are libertarians on the internet who don't know that. <laughs> but okay. People have a very odd understanding of the calculation problem because because I've definitely spoken with people who believe that the calculation problem and the information problem, which I just described that Hayek identified as separate. But my opinion, it seems to me that one one of Hayek's great insights is seeing the two problems are the same. Um, Because if you could solve, if you could in principle solve the information problem, you know, then you have all these economic equations that tell you how markets are supposed to behave. And you could just, if you had computational power, you could just substitute those unknowns into the equations. Um, And you can in principle just completely quote-unquote simulate markets so yeah yeah so just like you know how the germans uh play like you know truck simulator you know all day the (laughs) the german ordo liberals could play market simulator and then they wouldn't have to uh rely on on markets (laughs) touche uh, in any case, though, I, this is a really great back and forth, but I, I would like to uh, bring Gleason in here. Uh, you've been awfully quiet this whole time. You still awake, Gleason? Yes. Okay. I don't have too much to add to uh, to this discussion. All right. Well, well, let, let me ask you about something that I, I think you do probably know a little bit about, which is, which is value theory, right? I, I know that... Um, you're kind of into uh, Marxian economics, and and this is something where I think that the, you know uh, this is one of the biggest like flare-up points where I, this hasn't happened so much like recently. But I remember like you know several years ago, like maybe in in like 2012 and 13 or something, uh, there there were all these big fights between like uh, mainly Austrian and caps and like. Uh, Marxians and and also some like just like anarcho-communists who who had 
uh, if not Marxian economics, um, at least accepted the labor theory of value, basically like classical economics, right? Of the kind where I, I think Benjamin Tucker accepted classical economics. One, one of the big flare-up points there is, is the labor theory of value in that whole debate. What do you think about that? What do you think about the labor theory of value? Well, I think one of the problems with talking about the labor theory of value is a lot of people uh, think they know what that means, but really don't. Uh, the mud so pie for example, thing? yeah. The, so the mud pie example is a famous uh, straw man, and it's one that uh, Marx, right, they explicitly uh, points out that this is not what he's saying. Isn't that in like the first chapter of Capital or something? Uh, it's in Capital. I don't remember which chapter it's in, but uh, so right. So Marx and the other supporters of the labor theory of value are not claiming that. If you work hard to make something, then you need to be paid equal to like how much effort you put into it, right? Their their argument is that uh, uh, in in equilibrium, right, it's going to have to be the case that the average amount of labor required to produce a commodity is going to determine the value that it has. Though this is somewhat complicated. Uh, later by the transformation problem, but we can get into that later. Yes, well, the transformation problem was uh, solved, you see, by uh, the Soviets or something. I don't know. This is what Marx is that I've talked to you say. But but I do want to um, talk about that then. So is there uh, empirical evidence about this, about what the relationship is between, um, you know, like uh, labor like as an input good to the value of a commodity, right? Do, do we have evidence on that? We, we need to look at the data. Uh, well, I know that there is a paper called uh, something like the, the 98 or 97% labor theory of value, which tries to show how closely prices do track the amount of labor that's put into it. Uh -huh. But I, 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 uh, I'm not too confident. I don't know too much about that paper, so I can't comment too much. I, I've heard of a paper by, by a similar name by George Stick, but is this the paper you're talking about? Uh, it might be. Because I, I don't think that was an empirical paper, if I remember. It was basically saying that he, I think Stigler was trying to characterize Ricardo's views on the labor theory of value. And, be, and, and, and say that actually Ricardo did not believe in a true labor theory of value. He believed in a kind of empirical labor theory of value, where uh, basically kind of labor and capital would tend to be in fixed proportions, you know, throughout, you know, 90% of the economy or something like that. And that would tend to lead to a very high agreement with the labor theory of value. Or something like that, but it, that didn't actually have an empirical paper, right? An empirical verification of that. Although, I, I, yeah, something that's it's interesting. I, okay, this is something I, I never quite was able to wrap my mind around, but um, it, it's a concept that was sort of hinted at. Like, do you guys know anything about the relationship between um, uh, the shape of a supply curve and like value theory? Because as I understand it, there's some evidence which is empirical to suggest that at least in the long term, and, and for it, it kind of varies depending on you know uh, what like actual good we're producing here, but that for most stuff, at least in the long term, 
supply curves tend to actually be flat rather than you know, in the neoclassical model you know it's it's a uh, fucking it's not so the point is is that we were talking about like flat justice just like uh, a lolicon hentai how how is this related to value theory is this evidence of the labor theory of value should i answer that if you have an answer I do, yes. So, in my opinion, in my humble view, uh, the two are not related. But well, I can show how I can kind of explain how they are related. But in the, there's no particular reason why, uh, you know, you can't you can have any particular shape of supply curve in in the in the subjective theory of value. There's the subjective theory of value doesn't you know necessarily require any particular shape. I mean. I mean, the thing that, I mean, with the subjective theory of value, if I can just give kind of a background on, on, on what's wrong with the labor theory of value, I think somehow, I mean, I mean, I think it originates with Adam Smith, and what he said was that, you know, the true cost of anything is the time and trouble you put into acquiring it, you know, which seems kind of intuitive when you state it like that. But when you think about, you know, what, 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 does, what does cost mean? Well, he means some kind of disutility or displeasure. But disutility or displeasure relative to what? Because kind of, you know, absolute, you know, pain in an absolute sense does not really have economic significance. Because when, when you make a decision, you know, if you're being rational, and what you what you do is is you look at how much is you know how much how much utility is is a relative to b. You don't think about the utility of a or b in an absolute sense. It's only you know which has more utility and which has less. You know, so if you could if you could wave a wand, you know, and make everybody's utility you know utility of everything go up, that would kind of be economically meaningless because. It wouldn't actually change the differential utility of any of any choices, you know. So, disutility dis or dissatisfaction in an absolute sense can't really have economic significance. And so, but but what does have economic significance is opportunity costs, you know. So you can say that 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 whenever you choose something, you have to give something up. So 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 really, the disutility of labor is, you know, the on the one hand, the, the, the enjoyment you could be having by, by not working, but it's also the, the, the opportunity cost of applying that labor in that particular application, because labor could be applied to all other parts of the economy. So ultimately, you know, cost is just kind of a particular instance of value. This is kind of what's wrong with the uh, the labor theory of value way of looking at things, and it can kind of lead to these slightly fallacious ways of thinking. Like, for instance, if you're like a a lender and you're collecting interest, well, then it may seem like you're not doing any labor. Well, of course you aren't, you know. But then the neoclassical will come along and say, well, actually, there's an opportunity cost because you have to defer consumption, you know, and and uh, Marxists would just scoff at that. But of course, since opportunity cost is the only kind of of real cost, you know, being being slightly less happy is economically, you know, just as significant as being, you know, unhappy. 
you know, so there's just as much sense in which lending money is a kind of labor, you know, because you have to make an opportunity cost of deferring consumption. And so thinking of thinking of cost or, or displeasure in absolute terms does lead to kind of fallacies, which the subjective theory avoids. But in, in a sense, ultimately, these kind of costs are ultimately determined by values because because when you apply when you apply labor in one situation the opportunity cost is you know whatever that labor will produce in another situation but of course that is itself determined by values you know if you're producing if if you want to apply labor to guns versus butter well there's a subjective value of both guns and butter appears in the cost of guns versus the cost of butter you know, so if you produce a certain amount of guns, or if, or if you apply more labor to producing guns, well, the opportunity cost is you have to produce less butter, but of course the value of that is subjectively determined. So the, these costs are not objective things, but are kind of subsumed into subjective value theory. So, so this is, in my opinion, why subjective value theory is correct and labor, thera- labor theory of value is wrong. Um, I think with regard to supply curves, supply curves are an interesting problem because, because actually this is kind of an interesting historical point, but, but a lot of 19th century economists were quite aware of the fact that, that many, that firms generally seem to have economies of scale. They seem to have decreasing costs. Um, and of course the supply curve is really just a cost curve. So if, the, if, if costs are diminishing, the supply curve should be decreasing. And so how do you resolve that? And Alfred Marshall had this idea that, that you had a kind of life cycle of the firm where firms would appear, they would grow and become successful. And as they would grow, they would experience diminishing costs. But somehow other forces would eventually bring those firms down. And this way, you could have uh, stable competition all the while you had economies of scale. And I think in the 20s, I forget exactly what the arguments were made, but I think in the 20s, there was a series of articles basically just completely shitting on Marshall's idea. Because, I don't know, I think, I think people found that it kind of mixed assumptions. You know, like you assume that all firms are identical, but, you know, if you assume that all firms are identical, then the, the, this kind of life cycle of the firm idea doesn't really work. You know, if you assume the product is completely homogeneous and stuff like this. So it, I think one of Marshall's problems was that he, he tried to be as realistic as possible. And that meant that he kind of would often contradict his own assumptions within his argument. But there was a series of articles by a range of interesting people, such as Frank Knight, Jacob Viner, Joan Robinson, and Piero Sraffa, all, all on this topic, and Lionel Robbins, basically were talking about this issue of supply curves. And I think Viner put together this article where he talked about, well, theoretically, okay, if we're supposed to have perfect competition and it's meant to be stable, what kind of things should we assume and his basic idea was that you just have kind of diminishing technological returns that would tend to cause increasing costs at the level of the firm. 
and those increasing costs at the level of the firm would basically maintain stable competition. And there's a, I think there's a line in the article where he says, you know, this is not meant to be realistic. This is just supposed to be, you know, what you would need to assume for a perfect competition to kind of be internally consistent, you know. But it seems kind of odd that people have taken that, taken that article, which is really just supposed to be, you know, what, what would you have to assume to make perfect competition consistent and kind of present it in economics textbooks as this is how firms actually behave, which obviously it's not. Um, I think I think Srafa had a very interesting article talking about this, and he I mean he also along with all the others criticised Marshall. One of the arguments that Marshall made for, for the for the increasing supply curve was that as the firms experience increasing demand, they would need to hire more capital, hire more labour, and what that would do was that they would increase the demand for capital and labour, and it would just push up wages and, and rents and, and so on, which seems like a, a nice argument. But the problem is, you know, right at the beginning of the analysis, Marshall says, OK, we're going to assume an industry that's small relative to the size of the economy, because unless we assume that, things get very horrible and complicated. But the thing is, if the industry is small relative to the size of the economy, then it can't be pushing up wages and prices and so on. And so really, you shouldn't have this effect. And I think that was one of the things that Sarafa said, that you shouldn't, if an economy, if an industry is really small relative to the, the overall size of the economy, then its supply curve should be, according to Marshall's assumptions, basically flat. Yeah, Sarafa's article is very interesting. And then I think there was another two articles by, Robins, by Robinson and Viner, uh, which I think I want to do a blog post about those because it was fascinating. But they gave an but both of them gave a similar argument for why actually the supply curve may actually increase even if the industry is small relative to the size of the economy. And the argument was that was that the rates if you if you take for instance you know just for simplicity that there's only two inputs which are capital and labor, the ratio of those inputs in the in the rest of the economy is not going to be the same as the ratio in the industry that you're looking at even if it's small and so even so if the industry tries to expand you know it will want to draw from the rest of the economy capital and labor in the in the kind of appropriate proportions that it has for its particular industry you know there may be like a, a certain ratio that's optimal but the thing is the economy the rest of the economy may not be releasing those factors of production in that ratio and as a result the industry may be pushed towards some kind of suboptimal ratio of capital and labor which may increase costs um, and it, it, all of these articles have been i think collected into a collection by george stigler called like readings in price theory and it's very good i would highly recommend those articles especially strapper's article now that's that's all very interesting. Now I, I'd like to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I talked a bit. <laughs> no, that, I mean you just hit at uh, like a lot of different elements of you know the question I was asking. But I'd like to hear from Gleason on that topic. Do you believe in some version of the labor theory of value? Is that fair to say, Gleason, or am I mischaracterizing your position? Uh, I would say it's. Uh, not as clearly false as people think it is. Okay. All right. Very big brain to view, <laughs> measured. But so let me ask you then, 
Max just gave his um, explanation of how supply curves could uh, end up being flat or even rising, right, in some times, although I think supposedly empirically they're flat. Do you think that there is a an explanation that would basically support the labor theory of value for that phenomenon? Or would you just say there it's just unrelated? I don't really think it's particularly related. Uh, the, the classical economists tended to assume that outside of agriculture, there was just like a, a constant cost of production. And that's what manufacturing meant. But I don't think that's essential to their understanding of value. Okay. Well, we, did, we didn't discuss uh, the Amazing 80s video on, on the theory of value. Oh, did, well, very sad. <laughs> that's funny. Actually, did, did the Amazing Atheist make a video? I've never even heard of this. Yes, it was it was quite something. It, what, it was, was Electricity like? Dad of an economics video. <laughs> was it like in response to libertarians attacking him? I think so. I well it wasn't I'm not sure. I don't think it was directed of anyone in particular, but it was the worst economics video I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and the thing is well, what did uh, I what saw, did the thing is I was like a socialist at the time, so it seemed very convincing. But... What did you say, Sean? Oh, I made a joke. I asked what the amazing atheist had to say about Scrofa's argument. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, the amazing atheist took a completely unique view that nobody ever takes, which is he said he said that value was caused by three different sources: objective value, which he says is a thing, which is just like you know the baseline. You know, food is good because it you know satisfies hunger. That's objective value. Then there's subjective value, which is, I don't know, you like this, I don't know, the painting, because it just kind of, it, I don't know, you, you, it just suits you. And then there's intersubjective value, which is kind of society making you value things like diamonds. And then the value of a thing is just the sum of these three. It's always so cringy when someone, you know, you can tell they just like sit down and start talking about something and they just like making up like, like okay, well, here's how that <laughs> right? Like I, I would consider myself a fan of like Ayn Rand, but I think like that's sort of how what people criticize her for, right? Like that's sort of to, to a much lesser degree, obviously, than the amazing Ayn Rand is way better than the amazing atheist, but it, that's kind of how people like see her in, in philosophy terms although obviously she makes a lot of references to aristotle and she doesn't like you know whatever but um i, I wanted to sort of move the conversation in in uh, along the lines of classical economics and and marxian economics another sort of topic which we sort of alluded to at the beginning which is the fallen rate of profit and i i, I thought it was quite interesting um and this is somewhat obscure how the fall in the rate of profit is obviously a staple of uh, you know Marxian economics and and in political Marxism it sort of is incorporated into um, the idea of of why the downfall of capitalism is ultimately inevitable. But you know not a lot of people know that Rothbard actually agreed that in I think as he put it like the evenly rotating uh, economy uh, profit also does tend to zero. Yeah, but that's not. I mean, a, a very important distinction, though, there is that, as I understand it, Marx and people actually think in the real world the rate of profit will fall in some sense. But 
Rothbard's evenly rotating economy is an abstract right. hypothetical concept of what would happen in equilibrium, not something that he ever actually empirically thinks will happen. Sure. So that's true, but I think an even more important distinction is that what Rothbard calls profit and what Marx calls profit are two entirely different concepts. Right. So uh, Rothbard's profit is entrepreneurial profit, which is the income someone receives by spotting like an underserved like area where you can like make more money than everybody else and just like don't see this opportunity. And so he thinks that's what's going to fall to zero in the evenly rotating economy. But he doesn't think that the return to capital is going to fall to zero or that it even could. Okay. Uh, What's that called? Like economic profit or something? Uh, oh, you could call it. Yeah. Yeah. That's or right. yeah. Austrians like to call it entrepreneurial profit for. Yeah. Hmm. It, well, it's confusing because the classical economists referred to profit as being the rate of return on capital. So that this this tendency to refer to profit as being entrepreneurial profit is an, is a neoclassical thing. Yes. Or an, or an Austrian thing. Yes, especially Austrians, right? So, yeah, so the Austrian position is that profits in the ERE uh, are going to be zero, <laughs> but they don't think that that's going to be the case with uh, return to capital, which they usually call interest. I see interest as in, like, you know, uh, deferring consumption. Uh, yes. So, so, for example, with Marx, he thinks there's uh, an average rate of interest and an average rate of profit. But he uh, famously does not think that these two things are, are equal, though they are related in the sense that the upper bound of the rate of interest is the rate of profit. Really? I didn't know that about Marxism. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. So Marx thinks that uh, so it's it's a there's a, a class struggle, but there's not just a, a class struggle between the laborers and the capitalists. But within the capitalists, there's a distinction between the money capitalists and then the industrial capitalists. So the industrial capitalists are earning uh, profits, but the money capitalists are people that make money by loaning out their money, and so. There's an antagonism there because the industrial capitalists are the people that are paying them the money. And so he thinks that the division of the surplus value between the money capitalists and the industrial capitalists depends on the relative power of these two groups. Huh. That's really interesting. I, I wondered, uh, you know, this is a little bit off topic, but does he have any ideas about how those interests are represented politically? Uh, I'm sure he does, but I don't know them. Okay. Just just to oh. follow up on that, there's a, a book called Finance Capital by the Austro-Marxist uh, Rudolf Hilferding. And that's like uh, particularly what he discusses. So if you're interested in that, that's the book you should read. It was written, I think, in 1910. Now, I, I haven't heard of this. Austro-Marxist. Yeah, what, what does Austro-Marxist mean? I assume you mean like Austrian, the Austrian school and the, and the Marxian school, right? Some... Uh, well, so Ru Rudolf Hilferding uh, lived in Austria. Oh, that's what you just literally mean. He's from Austria. Yeah, so I mean, there is a term, the Austro-Marxist, which were like a school of Marxists that lived in Austria, that's... and so they had like distinct ideas. That's a very clickbaity but... term. So, well, so it is kind of related to the Austrian school in the sense that the Austro-Marxists 
uh, were influenced by Bon Baverk. Like they attended to seminars oh, and they really? wrote replies to him. Yes. That's funny. I think the Austrian um, school sort of influenced Marxism more broadly as well, didn't they? Like, I know, um, uh, what was it? There was some Marxist economist who talked about how, uh, like, he, he spent, like, he went, like, out of his way to, like, refute Mises or something and, and said, oh, like, Mises should be, like, deserves an honorable place among socialist economists for, like, pointing out this problem that we have now solved or something like that. Yes, that was Otto Bauer, who was an Austro-Marxist. Ah, yeah, okay. So there we go. I think, that was, I think he was talking about the calculation problem. Yes, there. he was. Yes, yeah. he, he recommended, I think, they build a statue or a bust to Mises, and like a kind of a, a snub, but uh, trying to be funny about it. <laughs> now, if I can um, shift gears here, I, I, do, I did want to talk about, this is sort of a somewhat unrelated topic, which is cost disease, right? Where it's, you know, to anyone who's not familiar with the concept, basically it's just that, um, you know, you look at the consumer price index, right? Uh, Obviously it's increased, you know, over time by some substantial degree and that's just inflation, right? But it's it's not even obviously, right? Like certain goods like increase, but some goods increase like a, a fucking lot, right? And, you know, Right now, it's stuff like uh, healthcare, college education, um, and you know, to some extent, a lesser extent, public school education. Um, some there's some infrastructure stuff, where basically it's not explained by an increase in you know the rate of profit. It's not explained by an increase in like you know how much the workers in the industry are getting paid. Um, you know the quality is not increased, but yet. Uh, the costs of these things have just increased like hugely and no one is exactly sure why and there's different theories. Does anyone have any strong opinions on this? It's because they're all on Facebook all day. One thing that that, uh, libertarians sometimes say is that it has something to do with government involvement in in given industries. I've never seen a rigorous test of that though. I've seen very anecdotal reasons. Like uh, like the Heritage Foundation points to five industries that have grown a lot in terms of price and five that have not, or uh, some liberal points to view does a similar thing. But I've I've not seen uh, a sort of systematic analysis whereby there's some measure of government influence in industry and looks at how that relates across a wide range of uh, of industries, how that relates to the change in price in the given industry. Uh, unfortunately, it'd be a good thing to know. Well, so I think I think instead of like a kind of uh, a statistical study, like why don't why don't they just like interview these companies? Like I th- wouldn't that be like way more interesting because it has to be it's something like really specific. It seems that's, that's driving this that may that may not be so obvious like in the kind of macro level data. I well okay so this is something at least for higher education right, which is the traditional explanation, although. Uh, maybe this is not borne out by statistics. I don't really know. Uh, you know, is the idea is basically that uh, because of you know the government subsidized loans, right, and because college is such an like important good, right, like it's the demand is relatively inelastic, right, and so that means they can basically charge almost however much they want, and they just end up like adding more and more like bullshit, right? So it's not as though this, this is not com- going into profit and it's not going into like wages of professors, which have been 
I think relatively stagnant, at least relative to the price index. But what it is going into is like, you know, adding more like pool halls and, you know, just like random nonsense into like college educations that didn't used to be part of the price. Well, and interestingly, you could say that the actual quality of the uh, the good of education has a uh, has decreased over that time period, not only because, of course, uh, in order to allow an increasing number of people into college, you have to make college dumber, uh, which we take for granted, but also in the sense that, sure, professor pay has not changed, but at least not a lot, but that increasingly kids are being taught by people who are not full professors at all, right? So the labor, the actual people being hired by the university are increasingly grad students, adjunct professors. So the amount of money, funnily, that schools are actually spending on what is presumably the most important factor in determining the quality of the education has probably decreased. Uh, what's going on? I, I don't know that that really speaks to why it's happening. It's just a, a funny or regrettable fact well, that, that accompanies well, it. Well, Sean, do you know whether or not um, some of this money that is perhaps being funneled away from buying like full-time professors and also, you know, which is going into the dramatically increasing price of tuition. Do you know if any of that money is just being funneled into uh, a lot of just like kind of random luxury nonsense as the narrative that I was kind of uh, sketching out would suggest? Is there any empirical yeah, evidence on that? I've seen things suggesting that non-teaching bureaucrats at school they're not only getting paid more but more importantly are much more numerous uh-huh. um, which i think anyone who's been to college like in recent years knows there are a large number of non-professorial bureaucrats involved in schools these days uh, i don't know about i've never seen empirical data on but my i mean intuitively which isn't worth much it would seem probable that uh, just renovating buildings and then these sorts of things or building more buildings or uh, things like that that aren't necessary might contribute to it. But it, but it is a funny thing because you see this in, in several other – like in medicine is, is analogous, right, where the, the actual uh, con- the, the actual uh, salary of doctors is not increasing, uh, at least not in, in a way that explains much at all the increase in price in healthcare. Um, so it seems at least that those two – and these are probably the two most talked about examples of cost disease, that what's going on is not simply that the uh, people – most directly involved or, or associated with uh, the actual work or getting paid a lot more, which makes it seem somewhat mysterious. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have a friend that, that, that worked for some time at the, at the student union at my university. And I was talking to Sean about this, and it just seems to be like this giant racket to basically provide cushy jobs to people. <laughs> like, they're not even that interested in running a proper business. It's literally just oh, I can get my friend or my relative into this, like, easiest fuck job where you just sit around in an office, browse on Facebook, do fuck all, and you actually get a salary. Well, that's interesting, but I I will point out that I don't think cost disease uh, is at least nearly as much of a problem for universities in the United Kingdom as it is in the U.S. Yeah, I know, but I, I... I'm suggesting maybe that's maybe that's where it's all going. Okay. <laughs> Just like cushy bureaucrat jobs, and the thing is, that these people may not only may not only have to pay their salaries, but they may actually slow down the process of getting things done. <laughs> that's an interesting. So actually, 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 have a cost that's larger than their salary. Hmm. Yeah, potentially. To put a little spin on it, uh, you know, this is something when you say, oh. People are 
increasingly like they're, they're taking loans, more people's much bigger demand, and that's partly driving up the cost of education. Right? And that's largely, I mean, a good deal of the people that take loans out are people that, that end up not actually graduating college to begin with, and these are uh, largely uh, black people in the United States anyway, uh, that take on very large amounts of uh, college debt, and, and then end up just failing out of the classes anyhow. Uh, and, and thus, the cost disease, at least in the case of education, maybe somewhat related to uh, sort of social egalitarian dogmas and, and things like this. Well, yeah, that is uh, one interesting spin. Another thing I wanted to say was that it, it seems as though, um, you know, we, we talked about how, like, you know, the, the libertarian narrative is, is you know, governments... Um, subsidizing like higher education with loans and stuff and maybe that's uh, particularly picked up on by you know uh, demographic groups that are for you know ideological reasons are, are encouraged to uh, shoot above their ability but it also seems interestingly analogous to another pro uh, industry which has you know rampant cost disease which is healthcare because we know that in healthcare it's sort of similar to education right uh, rather than having like a socialized system um, like Europe-poor countries, uh, you know, what in the, U in the U.S. and in, in Freedom Land, the government still subsidizes a large portion of um, you know, the actual cost, right? But it's still, it, it's not like socialized. It's just paid to, you know, the doctors. Are, you know, basically poor people like can't pay for their fucking... Uh, checkups they don't have insurance whatever it is and the government just essentially foots the bill and it's sort of similar to student loans right so it seems like there's an analogy there which that might go some part of the way to explaining cost disease i don't know now in the case of healthcare, right that seemingly has an awful lot to do with medical technology and and that the profit rates of medical technology companies are extremely high suggesting this one interpretation of that is that it's suggesting a pretty uncompetitive market uh, in, in the U.S., or at least something weird is going on. The profit rates in some years in the medical technology stuff is completely ridiculous relative to what normally goes on in the economy. Um, as I understand it, that's like related to the United States like basically subsidizing uh, the medical research of other countries by you know having a hugely disproportionate amount of medical research done here because the profit rates are so high. Yes, it, it, is, it is related in that way, but it's not clear. It's not clear why the profit rate should be so high. Um, I mean, there there are some reasons about. It. Has it actually Maybe risen? Because I know that the, the profit. Uh, no, I don't think the profit rate for a hospital. I, I remember seeing something at like hospitals, at least themselves, the profit rate has remained static despite the increasing cost. No, um, the profit rates for medical technology, which is not the same as hospitals. Uh, I believe have decreased somewhat, but they're still huge. Uh, I mean, back in the 90s, there, there's some data suggesting that their, their profit rate was at like 25, 26, 27 percent on average. Yeah. Uh, that makes Kevin Nanza, from Shark Tank very happy. Uh, <laughs> but I'll say this, though. If we're talking about, you know, profits decreasing from like a high point at the 90 or rate of profit decreasing from a high point in the 90s that still seems weird and not entirely a, a satisfactory explanation since obviously healthcare costs have substantially risen since the 90s yeah oh it's surely not the only reason i mean the i mean one of the most obvious reasons right is that nowadays we spend a ton of money uh 
on well, a on on late late in life care, trying to make people live an extra year or two, and this often is some of the most expensive medical care that exists. Uh, and, and then even earlier on in life, you just would go to the doctor a lot more. But you have this, this very interesting experiments, right? On um, so the natural experiments on Medicaid, uh, where you you find that being covered by Medicaid makes poor people go to the doctor a lot more, but seemingly does not have a positive benefit on any objective measure of their physical health, uh, which is a pretty damning thing yes. <laughs> for, for certain viewpoints. Medicare BTFO. I do want to bring Gleason back into this real quick because we talked about how, at least in the case of medical technology companies, their uh, rate of profit has declined substantially since the 90s. So I'm wondering, do you think that that is uh, evidence of um, the Marxian view? Uh, I don't think that's necessarily very strong evidence because it's it's one particular firm and it seems to have well, one particular sector and it seems to have abnormally high profits and i don't know why that is uh, okay well to be fair it is it's true that over the last um 60 or 70 years or so as i understand it, the rate of corporate profit in the united states overall has, has like somewhat linearly declined with time that's probably because we're approaching the evenly rotating economy <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, because that would see again. It's a different profit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, well, wait a minute. So obviously, entrepreneurial profit is different from you know, like the rate of return or whatever. Fine, but you know, if one is declining, the like the other is probably declining also, or at least it goes. I don't know if it works in reverse, but as, but if as as the Austrians understand entrepreneurial profit, like there is no rate of entrepreneurial profit. Oh, may I just don't know what I'm talking about then. Well, so, so entrepreneurial profit is like, if you know this, hey, uh, if I sell an apple over here where everyone's selling them, I only get X dollars. But if I move a couple feet, I can sell for like twice as much. And so you do that. Right. But that, so that's, but that's not like a, a rate of an investment. Okay, yeah. All it's, right. That uh, makes sense. Well, there's monopoly profit, isn't there? That, 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 that's a rate that's not, that you would not categorize as being a return on capital or labor or anything like that. Uh, that's what you could capitalize like a monopoly privilege, right? So like taxi medallions are kind of like that, right? Where they have like, they are capital because they give you a return, right? Because it's true. The supply. It may not be so formalized though. Like it may just be that just the startup costs are very large. It may, it may not be like a formal thing saying you have monopoly privilege. It may just be that there's... You know, seems like a web of different barriers to entry. Those firms need to check their privilege. One thing that's interesting, <laughs> I wonder what the shape of the distribution is of changes in price. Like, are what we t is cost disease an abnormal phenomenon that we wouldn't expect just given the natural level of variation of all the factors that influence the changes of price of time? Or is this actually we're just talking about the natural tail end of a normal distribution of changes of price? Okay, well, which, which, either way, it's still an interesting question, but it's like it's different in nature depending on which. I mean, that's kind of like a weird cop out, right? Because it doesn't talk about like the mechanism. <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's definitely it's, it's not a cop out, but like I said, it's an interesting question in either respect, but it affects what the question is because if it is the tail end of a normal distribution then what we would expect explains price increases in these extreme instances is just them having extreme values of the same factors okay. which explain yeah, I, I, price I understand. in general that makes sense yes yeah so it changes the nature somewhat to the question or the thoughts about it i do want to say though um you know we're getting close to the end of our uh, time together here unfortunately but i i do want to bring up one last topic to to discuss here and, and that's something I've been thinking about, which is basically, it seems like the, the 
economic consensus, the, the neoclassical consensus, it seems at least in, in an abstract way to be, you know, relatively free market leaning, right? But if you look at, um, you know, most economists, they seem to be more left leaning politically when it comes to actual like politics, like who, what, what kind of candidates do they support? Than, than that would suggest. And obviously this is substantially going to be influenced by just like tribal stuff. But w what kind of surprised me is that uh, even if you look at their views on specific issues, right? Like there's polls of economists like, um, okay, I, I remember one that, that took me by surprise a lot, which is like, uh, it was a poll of economists that asked, uh, will Trump's decreases in the corporate tax rate like increase um, economic growth? And, and it was a surprising amount of economists who were surveyed here. Like I think it, I mean, it was the majority of them said like probably not. And that really surprised me because I mean I, I literally have like I, I know about like several specific papers that like you know just empirically find that corporate tax rates are, are really bad for economic growth. And I mean, these are done by economists, right? Like, and this seems to, this is not like a fringe view or something. I, as I understand it, this is basically the consensus. But then how is it that like in these polls, like they're asking like, oh, is when Trump does, the, you know, the corporate tax rate, is that going to be good? And they're all like, no. They, they should poll them to say when, when, when Cheeto Hitler lowers the tax rate, will, uh, Will growth increase? I mean, I, see what like, the results are. This seems like a rather maybe an uncharitable explanation, I might say. But like, is it literally just because you know economists are blue tribe and they hear Trump and they just like have a strong bias to just say something bad about him? Like, and if we just like said like when Obama lowers the corporate tax rate, is that good? They would say yes. I mean, like that that seems really like it's kind of cringy to even say that. But like, it, I mean, is that true? Or, or it could be that the, that the cuts are not large enough to influence growth. And they I would, don't they think that was the yes. reason well, of the economists. Once it's a situation such that most economists are to the left, obviously a sort of cycle happens, right? Whereby they want to hire people to join the department who agree with them, and then that concentration becomes more and more and more like that. But in ego, I, I don't know. I, I don't – in social science – in general, um, anyway, I don't remember the numbers for economics in particular, but in general, like a very large influence in terms of uh, the left-wingedness of, uh, of social sciences, and especially them, them in the, about the mid-20th century becoming so left-wing in the first place, is just the sheer number of uh, Jewish people involved in those disciplines. And I know <laughs> oh, we're going there. Are very heavily overrepresented among uh, academic economists, especially in elite universities. Um, and again, back in the, the 70s, anyway, if you look at uh, a lot of academic disciplines, they're literally like their tilt to the left is mostly a function of the fact that they have lots of Jewish people in them. I, well, can I just point out that actually uh, economics is not actually lean that strongly left. If I recall, there, there have been a few polls on how many economists say that they're, you know, Republican or Democrat. And it basically comes out two-thirds Democrat, one-third Republican. So there's quite a significant number of right-leaning economists. Right, I mean, it's relative uh, to, like, other social sciences and relative to just, like, 
you know yeah i mean in like psychology it's like nine or or sure in in many disciplines it's like 19 to one yes maybe even higher than that. yes yes i think in psychology is maybe the ratio well even among the democrat uh economics professors i would suspect that they are more right-wing as is traditionally defined uh, on economics than the average democrat is sure I mean, well, that is almost. But it, it doesn't really social. explain. Like, I, I mean, I guess I, I'm asking a question that I guess we can't really answer, right? Because what I, I was talking about a specific thing, which was literally like, you know, just I saw like a poll of like a bunch of economists that seemed to say like it, it was it wasn't like Democrat or Republican. It was a very specific position, like no, Trump's tax cuts will not help us, right? And and that contradicts what I understood to be just like the economic consensus. So I don't know. And the thing is with growth rates is that they're kind of, I mean, they're such a macro thing that may, they may just be very difficult to influence. Yeah, okay. That, that makes sense. I, don't know. I mean, surely this is mostly just because of the leftist culture and academia that makes them oppose things that, that uh, A, that Republicans do, and B, especially that someone like Trump does. Right. I mean, at, at, the, at least at the most proximal level, that is surely the cause. And uh, it's, I think if we, if we ask why that culture is established in the first place, that uh, there's... Uh, Plenty of data about that. Okay. Well, with that anti-Semitic remark, I think we're gonna have to <laughs> we're gonna have to close the podcast. We're gonna have to shut it down, so to speak. Uh, once again, I have been Chucky e. R. Law. With me today are state your names. Sean Last, Prophet Maximizer, and Gleason. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on, everybody. That took you too long. Uh, you can write us an email at cursediscussions.gmail.com. I'm going to put this up on uh, Pocket Cast through Anchor. And obviously, subscribe to our YouTube. Like us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, suck my dick. And thanks for listening. Bye. Sean. <laughs> Like he can't help himself. <laughs> I even I even made a point to not call them Jews. I called them Jewish people. <laughs> <laughs>